0: What is so special about Jesus? Jesus identifies with us. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. Jesus, our high priest, builds a bridge across the gulf that separates us from God. The Latin word for priest means bridge builder. We think of the cross as the bridge to God, and it surely is. But in other important ways, Jesus identifies with mere men and women like us. The incarnation itself is an astounding act of identification with the human race. The incarnation is the belief that in Jesus, the eternal word of God appeared in human form. God becoming human is a dramatic identification with sinners such as you and me. Incarnation means coming in the flesh with its chafing limitations. Saint Ignatius of Antioch, martyred in A.D. 117, taught that Jesus took on human form not for 33 years here on earth, but for eternity. Seeing how Jesus so totally identifies with us mortals, who would want to deny what Ignatius thought? The temptation reveals how Jesus identifies with us. Jesus struggled with hunger power and or success and worship issues but he overcame the temptation to let physical needs elbow out the spiritual priorities jesus declined the temptation to secure his following through the sensational jump off the temple turret and come floating down unhurt the devil suggests that will get their attention better than a sermon satan then quotes a psalm to jesus to make his point see matthew chapter 4 verse 6. jesus has the devil's number He knows his name, Diabolus, the one who tears apart, the one who causes division. Here we see that Satan, the very antithesis of true religion, traffics in miracles and quotes scripture. Should one be aware of those who constantly seek miracles and mumble-proof text scriptures? Further, Jesus withstood the temptation to strive for worldly success, not making a million dollars, not that kind of success, but something more sinister. Jesus rejected the power whereby Satan, the prince of the power of the air, rules the kingdoms of the world. The deal the devil pitched was, submit to me, worship me, and I will share my depraved power over the world. Jesus flatly refused the demonic, so should we. The Lord, who is our guide and judge, has also walked in our shoes. He knows the temptations that will bait you tomorrow and the burdens that weigh you down today. He sympathizes with our human weaknesses see hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 the sacrificial death of jesus is the ultimate act of identification he who knew no sin became sin for us that we could be reconciled to god second corinthians chapter 5 verse 19 through 21 he felt the agony of the ultimate loneliness that surges into the soul when sin separates us from god Christ so identified with our sinfulness that the sense of separation from God pierced him to the core. Quoting Psalm 22, he cried out, My God! My God! Why have you forsaken me? Matthew 27, verse 46 From Why Did Jesus Die? Illustrated Bible Life March through May, 1996, page 14 Surely God had not truly forsaken Christ, for where one member of the Holy Trinity is, all are present. And on the cross, God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 19, King James Version Yet in the human depth of his being, Christ tasted death and separation on our behalf. As theologian Thomas A. Noble writes, God himself, God the Son, became human in order that on our behalf, he might complete that atonement from the human side too. From Reflecting God, page 60. The baptism dramatically signals Christ's identification with unworthy sinner. It is a take-your-breath-away act of identification with us. Let me set the scene. In the murky waters of the Jordan, John the baptizer is baptizing those who respond to his call for a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Luke chapter 3, verse 3. You brood of vipers, John thunders. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Luke 3, verse 7 and 8. Those wearied with the weight of their wickedness step into the Jordan as an act of repentance. The word for repentance is metanoia. That means to change your mind and turn in a new direction. That is, turn from your sins and to God. The men and women in godly sorrow for their sins wade out to meet John. He prays for them and then baptizes them. Somehow, they feel their sins wash away in the waters of the Jordan. Metanoia has happened. Forgiveness is received, and those dripping with the baptismal waters no longer define themselves as sinners. Who is that? It is Jesus the Nazarene. He is in line, in line with the repenting sinners. Why would the Son of God, who knew no sin, be baptized like this? There is no doubt about the invitation given by the preacher. This baptism of repentance is for guilty sinners. So why would Jesus Christ, who has never sinned, not ever, not even once, wade into the river as if he were just another sinful man? According to scholars and teachers like Ralph Earl, Wesley Tracy, and John Shea, only one answer makes sense. Christ so identifies with human need that he, who will one day bear our sins to Calvary, now experiences on behalf of all mankind the washing of baptism. From Reflecting God, page 60, Crossways. Dr. Wesley D. Tracy, the speaker, knew parts of this teaching sermon would challenge commonly held assumptions. Therefore, pastoral rather than confrontational language was used. He hoped to open minds and not use accusatory language that always produces defensiveness. There were many quotations in the sermon. Most of the footnotes were not spoken in the preaching of the sermon, but the quotations from respected theologians let the hearers know that these ideas were not the preachers alone. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. What do you see when you look at the cross? I mean, really look at the cross. Not when you note the cross on the bell tower that lets you know the place you turn to get to the one-hour Photoshop. Not the way you look at a cross-shaped locket to see how it sets off an indigo blouse. What do you visualize, feel, and think when you look at the cross of Christ? I feel that the doctrine of the cross, the doctrine of atonement, has become a matter of assumption, an almost glib, been-there-done-that level of consideration. But the mysterium tremendum of the atonement deserves more attention than that. Only in heaven we will fully comprehend all the dynamics of this miracle of love and grace. Sometimes our preachers and songwriters even get a little bit careless in slinging around crosstalk. The ideas we preach teach, and sing sometimes go down crossways to the person really seeking to know the God behind and the God on the cross. We certainly will not probe all the sacred depths of the mystery of the atonement in this sermon today. I cannot answer all the questions, but let me ask some questions that evangelicals need to look at given the offhand crosstalk that abounds today. When you look at the cross with the eyes of your heart, do you see primarily punishment? I spoke on the phone the other day to a young woman, a graduate of Nazarene College. She is active in the youth program and conducts a Bible study in her home. She was complaining about her pastor's sermon. Not so unusual, I know. It seems that her pastor had preached on the awfulness of sin, and he failed, according to the young woman, to tell them that, and now I quote her, Jesus had taken the punishment for our sins. This young woman is very dear to me, my granddaughter, but I had to stop her and ask, Where in the Bible does it say that Jesus was punished for our sins? Well, of course, you couldn't come up with any reference. And you couldn't either, because as Nazarene theologian H. Ray Dunning says, the notion that Jesus bears punishment for man's sin is totally foreign to the New Testament. Grace, faith, and holiness, page 372. J. Kenneth Greider, another Nazarene theologian who disagrees with Dunning every chance he gets, actually agrees with him on this point. The sacrificial death of Jesus was not an act of punishment. Or if it was, the divinely inspired New Testament writers missed it. But evangelicals and fundamentalists often use that imagery. Looking over the second grade curriculum of a leading evangelical publisher, I read this sentence. I mean, I held the paper in my hand and read it myself. God killed Jesus for your sins. Who could blame the little kids for feeling sorry for Jesus and being mad at God the Father? That's the problem with that kind of language. It impugns the good name of God the Father. It paints a picture of a dad enraged and outraged at life in general, and at his kids in particular. He grabs one of his sons and flogs him, thrashes him to the door of death. His rage finally appeased, he announced, I forgive you. What? If the son could speak, he would say, and I quote theologian J. Kenneth Grider: the son would say, No, you did not forgive me. You punish me. A Wesleyan holiness theology. Page 329. Greider, my teacher at seminary, goes on to say, If the Father's justice must be satisfied by punishment, then no forgiveness is possible. It is either punishment or forgiveness. Surely not punishment and forgiveness. Page 329. Clark H. Pinnock, Canadian evangelical theologian, reminds us, God is not statistically crucifying his beloved son. Jesus did not die to change God's attitude toward us, but to change our attitude toward God. The cross was not a sacrifice without which God could not love or forgive us. It was a sacrifice without which we would not have been able to accept forgiveness. Unbounded Love, InterVarsity Press, 1994, page 103. Another problem with punishment talk is that we separate the persons of the Trinity and pit them against one another, as in God killed Jesus. The Trinity is a unity, a community of love that cannot be separated or divided. The Christian faith teaches that there is one divine essence, three distinct persons, with the totality of the essence dwelling in each person. The God revealed in Jesus is one God revealed, as our articles of faith declare, as Father, Son, and Spirit. Baptist theologian Stanley J. Grint says, "'This God is one, for the three persons share the same will, nature, and essence.'" Christians are not polytheists, for we do not worship three distinct gods. We serve the one God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. What Christians really believe and why? Louisville, Kentucky, Westminster, John Knox, 1998, page 71. What does this mean? It means that wherever we find one person of the Trinity, we find them all. As the Bible says, God the Father was in Christ on the cross, reconciling the world to himself. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 19. If when you pray, visualizing the cross, you see punishment, perhaps you are missing something. Have you conjured up a fierce God who is not about to offer any grace or forgiveness until somebody bleeds? Who could call that forgiveness? God the Father deserves better from us. Let us be careful how we use punishment language when we speak of the Father who is, after all, according to St. Paul, the Father of compassion, the Father of all comfort. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. When you look at the cross, do you see a debt paid off? When you think of the cross, do you think of a debt being paid? Think about this. Who paid what? To whom? And why? I hate to blame the lawyers like everyone else does, but a lawyer got Protestants to think of the atonement as a legal transaction in which Jesus paid the debt for our sins. John Calvin was a great man, but he was a lawyer first and a theologian second. His crosstalk was legalese from beginning to end. To Calvin, one of the greatest of the Protestant reformers, God was a stern judge who is mad at us and must be appeased. Jesus stepped up and paid the debt that made God stop being mad and start loving and forgiving us. In his Institutes, Brother Calvin made it seem that God wanted Jesus to die and predestined Pilate and Caiaphas to make it happen? Surely not. Jesus is God's beloved Son. The Father and the Son are not divided or in opposition. Pinnock, page one hundred and two. Nazarene theologian J. Kenneth Grider rejects the cross as debt paying. He says, Even as one cannot punish and also forgive, one cannot accept payment for a debt and still forgive. Page three hundred and thirty one. Grider points out that the scripture indeed says, You are not your own, you are bought at a price. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. This no doubt means that we are bought with the price of Christ's suffering, not the price of a debt being paid. The Bible does speak of one dimension of the atonement as a ransom, but even in those three cases, no third party collecting accounts payable is noted. Greider goes on to say, neither a human being nor God surely can accept payment for a debt and still forgive the debt. And forgiveness... Sheer forgiveness is unique to Christianity, of all the religions, and must be protected. Page 331. Put more simply, suppose you owe me $100. I demand full payment, with interest. You pay your tab in full. Then I say, I forgive you the debt. How false. How oxymoronic. If the debt is paid, how can I say it was forgiven? If the cross was a payment to God, he could not forgive us. How could he accept payment and then say he forgives? If God accepted payment for all the sins of all the sinners, how could anyone at any time be condemned or end up in hell because of their sins? Not only does this create a logical problem, it puts a black mark on the character of God the Father. To say that God the Father ordered Jesus to pay the penalty for sin not only divides the indivisible trinity, but makes the father a fierce ogre who belligerently refuses to forgive a single sin until the bill is paid in full. Some have actually taught that mankind was held captive by Satan and Jesus was the ransom price paid to the kidnapper. Then, like a cagey lawyer, God tricked the devil and got his son back. That kind of theology does not inspire confidence. God the Father did not sit down at some cosmic bargaining table and strike a deal with the devil, giving up Jesus like a slave trader. Nor was there some transaction whereby Jesus contracted to buy off a stubborn God the Father. Knowing the unity of the Trinity, we understand that where one person is, all are present. Thus, the Bible says, God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19, King James Version. That is to say, God absorbed within himself the suffering needed to produce atonement. He did it not because someone finally met his price. He did it because he is love, holy love. When we say that God was in Christ reconciling us, we mean that there was no third party in the wings writing out a paid-in-full receipt. God is at once the offerer and the offering for sin. Every person in the Holy Trinity acted in unison as God absorbed within himself the suffering required for our redemption. West Tracy, Reflecting God, page 46. When you see the cross, does it block your view of the resurrection? Listening to some clergy, one would think that salvation was achieved, completed, finished, wrapped up when Jesus went to the cross. The resurrection then appears as sort of a like dessert perhaps angel food cake, at the end of a five-course meal, at which the main entree was the cross. Even on Easter, many clergy cannot resist looking at the crucifixion. Next Easter in many churches, clergy will almost certainly remind their congregation that there is no Easter without Calvary. Is the central human problem guilt or death? Those who think it is guilt often diminish the resurrection in favor of the cross. If the problem is essentially guilt and the atonement is about punishment and debt-paying, then the cross is all they need. The resurrection has little or no saving value. But those of us who see the great human problem as essentially death know that the resurrection has great saving power. St. Paul knew that, for if we were reconciled through the death of his son, how much more shall be saved through his life. Romans chapter five, verse 10. St. Peter knew that in his great mercy, he, God, has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Peter also wrote concerning baptism, it saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 3, verse 22. Make no mistake, both guilt and death are great human problems, but in the cross and the resurrection, both problems are fully dealt with. Forgiveness of sin and eternal life. What more could we ask for from a loving redeemer? Sometimes we need to be reminded that without the resurrection, we would probably have never heard of Jesus of Nazareth. No resurrection, no Christianity. The bodily resurrection of Jesus stands as the cornerstone of the church. What about all those commandments, parables, and the miracles of Jesus? What about the crucifixion? Without the resurrection of Jesus, you would have never heard of any of those. Not one. His life and death would have been anonymously buried by the sand of time. Not a footprint would have been left by the Nazarene without the resurrection. Josephus, the ancient historian, wrote that during the first century AD, the Romans crucified 1.1 million Jews. When the Roman legions tore down the temple, Josephus says the soldiers crucified Jews on every standing tree in Jerusalem. When they ran out of trees, they nailed them to walls. The blood of crucified Jews ran in rivers down the street. Jesus would have been just one in a million except for the resurrection, which validated his incarnation, miracles, teachings, and his sacrificial death. Today, resurrection power fuels the experience of eternal life. What Jesus did had never been done before in the whole history of the universe. C.S. Lewis says, He has forced open a door that has been locked since the death of the first man. He has met, fought, and beaten the king of death. The Joyful Christian, page 65. Do not think that the resurrection of Jesus proves merely the immortality of the soul. The resurrection is not about the survival of the human spirit. If that is all that happened, then Jesus simply did what all men do. The body dies, the soul escapes to a body-free, ghostly existence in some never-never land. If that were the case, then the only thing new about Jesus' experience would be that we got to see it happen. C.S. Lewis, page 66. The resurrection of Jesus included the resurrection of the body. We too then look forward to being raised imperishable, for the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. Death has been swallowed up in victory. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 52-54 We do not know nearly all that we would like to about that resurrection body, but we know that we shall be like the risen Christ. 1 John Chapter 3 verse 2 For those first Christians Teaching and preaching about Jesus Was primarily proclaiming the resurrection Paul wrote I passed on to you As of first importance That Christ died for our sins He was raised on the third day 1 Corinthians chapter 15 Verses 3 and 4 Truly Jesus in his incarnation Crucifixion and resurrection Is our light and our hope As you think of the cross And all its redemptive truth Please note that it is silhouetted by the redemptive glow of Easter. When you look at the cross, do you see primarily agony endured or love outpoured? When we gaze upon the cross, the agony endured on our behalf breaks our heart. That agony was intense, real, and greater than any pain I have volunteered to bear. But the cross is much more than agony endured. It is love poured out, William Barclay in the Daily Study Bible reminds us, There is something tragically wrong with any emphasis on the agony of the cross, which dimmed the brightness of the resurrection. Something wrong with any suggestion that it was endured pain rather than overcoming love that secured man's salvation. James and Peter, page 185. Is the cross more than endured pain for you? The physical pain that his murderers inflicted upon Jesus was not greater than many others endured. Those who have been butchered or burned at the stake or tortured to death in other ways have endured much more physical pain than Jesus did. We need to know that Jesus voluntarily suffered intensely for us. Preachers like me sometimes leave the impression, however, that Christ was all about agony. I remember when Jim Bishop's book, The Day Christ Died, came out. He described in authentic detail the excruciating death on the cross. I developed a sermon on the agony of the cross that shamed several people to an altar of prayer. Some Christians in the Catholic tradition have been so mesmerized by the suffering on the cross that the epitome of spirituality for them was to so agonize with the pain of Jesus that the wounds of Christ would appear on their own bodies. Blood would actually flow from their palms in sympathy for Jesus. While such devotion is not to be scoffed at, perhaps they saw the cross as agony endured rather than love outpoured. Our Eastern Orthodox friends are quick to tell us Western Christians that seeing the cross as primarily pain is a flaw in our spirituality. Instead, they see the cross as triumphant love. Some of you have read Cahill Gibran. Gibran was the son of a Christian priest. In his book, Jesus, the Son of Man, he reports the experience of Simon of Cyrene, the man who was forced to carry the cross when Jesus faltered and fell under its weight. Simon tells of the hammer and nails of the crucifixion. But looking at Christ hanging there, he says, my heart did not think to pity him, for I too was filled with wonder. Alfred A. Noth, 1966, page 202. In one of Gibran's devotional essays, written on Good Friday, He stands before the cross and says, If humanity were wise, she would stand today and sing in strength the song of conquest and the hymns of triumph. Thou art on the cross, more glorious and dignified than one thousand kings upon one thousand thrones in one thousand empires. Thou art in the agony of death, more powerful than a thousand generals in a thousand wars. With thy sorrows, thou art more joyous than the spring with its flowers. Thy wreath of thorns is more brilliant and sublime than the crown of Bahram. The nails piercing thy hands are more beautiful than the scepter of Jupiter. The splatters of blood upon thy feet are more resplendent than the necklace of Ishtar. Forgive the weak who lament thee today. Forgive them, for they do not know that thou hast conquered death with death and bestowed life upon the dead. Forgive them, for they do not know that thy strength awaits them. From The Treasured Writings of Cahill Gibran, Castle, 1975, page 233. George Hunter tells a story about the first Methodist church in Czechoslovakia. Czechoslovakia had more than 100 laws limiting what the church could do. They could not witness, evangelize, or even put up a church sign. Then came the day when communism collapsed. All 100 anti-church laws were repealed at once the elders at First Methodist Prague met to consider what to put on their very first church sign. The meeting lasted late into the night. They discussed, prayed, meditated, and voted. The next morning found this sign in the front of the church. The Lamb wins. Herald of Holiness, May 1993, page four. While not diminishing the agony of the cross, you and I need to sometimes behold our crucified Savior and shout, the Lamb Wins. This sermon was preached by Wesley Tracy, guest preacher at the First Church of the Nazarene, Kansas City, Missouri, September 9, 2001. Closing Thought C.S. Lewis warns us how silly it is to say that Jesus was a great moral teacher, but not the Son of God. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a moral teacher. He would be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil from hell. You must make your choice. From Mere Christianity, Macmillan Company, 1970, page 40 and 41. Lewis goes on to say, either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God but let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to.